Hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to John chapter 20. We're going to be working out of John chapter 20 today. And last week, uh, we started a series called What is Truth? And what we're trying to do is we're, we're answering common objections that people have to Christianity. Objections like, is the Bible reliable? Can you believe in science and God? Is there really only one way to God? And, and really what we were wanting to do, we're wanting to go past, we're going, wanting to go beyond the quick, popular Instagram reel or TikTok feed and really consider the whole story of what Christianity is. Um, Rebecca McLaughlin, she has this excellent illustration in her book, The Secular Creed. It's in the, the, on the resource wall out there. You, you can pick it up. But in that book, she gives this uh, example from Harry Potter. And I feel like uh, it's, it's been 10 years. I'm gonna give a spoiler here, but I, I feel like we're on safe ground. If, if you were gonna watch it, you would have watched it already. But there's a, there's a scene in the movie, The Half-Blood Prince, that's pretty shocking. Uh, Dumbledore, who is the wise, good wizard, uh, think Gandalf or Yoda, if you're not familiar with the series, He's a wise, good wizard, and, and he's standing on top of the astronomy tower. He's surrounded by his enemies. They're closing in on him, but he appeals to another one of the professors for help. And he says this. He says, Severus, please. But Severus Snape kills him. It's a pretty devastating scene, you know, we really didn't like Severus Snape to begin with, but there was a time when we thought that he might come around, but now, after watching what he did, we're just like, Snape is just the worst. But it's only in the final movie that we find out just how wrong we were. Because what we do is we see this scene years and years and years in the past where Dumbledore actually gives Snape his grand plan to defeat evil in the world, and he says this, he, he actually says, there's gonna be a time when you're gonna have to kill me, I'm gonna ask you to kill me, and you've gotta do it. And immediately, we see that scene where, Snape, where Dumbledore is surrounded by his enemies, and that request, Severus, please, is totally reversed. I think when our secular culture looks at our Christian faith, I think they see a lot of things like snake killing Dumbledore. They see a religion with an unreliable Bible. They see a religion that is divisive and dangerous. They see a religion that's exclusive, it's antiquated, it's anti-science, anti-intellectualism. And, and yeah, I think there's a, there's a tendency in our cultural moment now to say that the sands are, of time are running out on Christianity. And all we have to do is we've got to get as much cultural power as we can. We've got to batten down the hatches and just ride this thing out. But I'm convinced that doing that is really just building a sandcastle on a foundation of sand that will not stand up against the ways of history. And here's why I say that. Because in the same way that Severus please is totally flipped when we see all of Severus Snape's story, when we look at these objections that people have to Christianity, when we see the real story of Christianity, 
but we actually see that they're pointers, they're rich markers that point us to Jesus and his gospel. And so like I said, today we are gonna be in John 20. And the reason that we're gonna be in John 20 is because our question that we're asking today is, can you believe in both science and God? We've, uh, we've been walking through these, the, these questions here, but we're particularly gonna be in John 20 because John 20 tells the story of a guy named Doubting Thomas. Now, if you have a background in church, or even if you don't have a background in church, you've probably heard of Doubting Thomas before. Kind of a rough name to carry for the past 2,000 years. But Doubting Thomas is going to give us some really rich resources to approach this question of can science and God coexist? Can we believe in both? Why? Because how we understand the relationship between science and Christianity is going to hinge on how we understand and how we approach doubt. So like I said, John 20 is where we're gonna be. If you have a Bible, that's where we're gonna be. But before we read the word of God together, let's talk to the God of the word and ask him to help us understand it and be transformed by it. Let's pray. Lord, we need you to speak today. Your people do not need to hear the words of a young man. They need to hear the words of an eternal God. And Lord, I ask that you would do what your word has promised, that you would cut deep, convict us where we need to be convicted, challenge us where we need to be challenged, and let the weight of scripture bear down on us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is John 20, starting in verse 24. Now, Thomas One of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So at this point, Jesus has been resurrected. He's appeared to Mary and the disciples. When that happened, for some reason, Thomas wasn't there. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there, but but he wasn't there. And this is verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So doubting Thomas, let's let's talk about our guy Thomas for a moment. We really don't know too much about Thomas. We know this episode, we know what he's most famous for, which is being doubting Thomas. But there's more to Thomas' story, and and I want you to see this. Check this out, This, this is John 11. Jesus and his disciples have just heard that their friend Lazarus has died. So Jesus says this in verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, here's our guy, doubting Thomas. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Doubting Thomas being more like ride or die Thomas here. I mean, Jesus is saying, Lazarus has died, let's go to him. And Thomas is like, we're gonna die? It's a good day to die, let's go get some, bro. I mean, this is like the Alamo to where Jesus takes a sword, draws it in the line and says, we're going. And Thomas is like, let's go, let's go get some. This is like ride together, die together, bad boys for life, we're all in. This is incredible courage from Thomas, incredible boldness from doubting Thomas. But there's something else that we know about Thomas. We know this one from church history. 
After Jesus, he gave the great commission and the disciples, they went out into all the world to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You know who went for the furthest out of all of them? Thomas. Paul went to Rome. He might have gone to Spain, we don't really know, but he definitely went to Rome, 2,000 miles from Jerusalem. Our guy Thomas, that man walked 4,000 miles all the way to India, and in 72 AD, they ran a spear through him on a beach near Chennai because he would not stop proclaiming that Jesus was Lord and God. Y'all, all I'm saying about Thomas is that from what we actually know about Thomas, he's all in on Jesus. From basically saying, oh, we're gonna die? It's a good day to die, let's go. Between that and going all the way to India further than any other disciple, Thomas is a ferocious and tenacious brother. But here's the thing, we've also got this doubting episode here. We've also got this episode where he says, unless I touch it, unless I see it, no, I'm not gonna believe it. So what, what, what do we do with this? Here it is. Here's what God is telling us through this passage here in John 20. God's showing us that through Thomas is that no matter who you are, no matter how strong your faith actually is, you will face doubts. Doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. Well, I'll say that again so it actually sinks in. Doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. And listen to this because this is foundational for us to understand what the Bible is saying here. Doubt, when processed well, it can actually lead to a deeper and confident faith. It's a normal part of the Christian life. And when we process it well, it can actually lead to a deeper, confident faith. Charles Spurgeon, he, uh, he had a great illustration for this. He said, to think of doubt like this. Think of doubt like a foot raised, and it's poised to take a step forward or take a step backward. And he said, it's true. In your doubt, you may take a step backward. But it's also equally true that you're never gonna take a step forward until you actually raise your foot. Listen, Thomas gets a bad rap, but I'm telling you how this text is written, it's written to show us that there's sometimes in our life, God is gonna put things in our life so that we ask questions, so that it challenges our expectations because he's trying to get us to raise our foot. And sometimes the only way that you're gonna raise your foot and take a step forward in faith is if he does it. Or think of it like this. A Christian who doesn't wrestle through doubt is like a body without vaccines. Do do we understand the concept of vaccines, the the science behind vaccines? Um, How vaccines work is that you get a bit of a virus put in your body so that your antibodies, your your white blood cells, so they learn how to fight and and overcome this virus. So it's kind of like training for your white blood cells. It's live fire, but it's not all out warfare. And what you'll get are symptoms that feel like the real thing. So you'll get a fever, you'll get chills, you'll get achy, and you'll feel sick because there's a small amount of the virus that's been put inside your body and your body is working to overcome it. But as your body is fighting that virus, here's what's happening. You're getting stronger. 
You're fighting off a small version of this, of this virus so that when a major virus actually attacks your body, the idea is that you'll be strong enough to fend it off and actually endure it, but it's necessary to go through it because it's making you stronger. I remember when we took Luke, my oldest son, in for his one-year-old vaccinations. Um, that was one of the more traumatic events in my life because I don't know if you're aware or not, but whenever there's vaccines involved, there's typically a needle involved. And Katie and I, are, we're at the end of the checkup and we're bracing for what comes next. You know, Luke has no idea, he's one years old, he doesn't know what, it, what he's looking at. We're trying to brace ourselves for what comes next, but if y'all have been there, you know nothing braces you for what comes next. And so what happens is, and I'll never forget this, whenever that needle went into that boy's leg, he let out a scream like nothing I have ever heard before. And I, I always remember this just image, it's seared into my mind. He looks up at the doctor who gave him that shot and then he frantically starts to look around the room for somebody to help him until his eyes lock onto my eyes. And he didn't talk then, he was one years old, but I know exactly what he was saying. He was saying, Dad, why is this happening to me? Dad, help me. Dad, you were supposed to protect me. Why, why is this happening? He starts to wriggle and, and writhe and try and get out there. And if you've been in that situation, you know what happens next. I've got to take his little body and hold him down as shot two and shot three go into his leg. Now, I'm a first-time dad. I mean, this is, this is horrifying. This is horrible for me. Uh, it's horrible for him. I mean, I'm looking into his eyes. He's looking into my eyes. My tears are falling into his tears. But it has to happen because it's gonna make him stronger. And I don't know. I, I, just, I just wonder if there's somebody in here today who you're going through some serious doubts. And in your pain, God himself is holding you down. And you're saying, I don't understand this. Why is it having to be like this? How long is it gonna be like this? God, why aren't you doing something? And as the God of the universe is holding you down and his tears are falling into your tears, He's saying, I know, I'm here. I love you and I know you don't understand it right now. I know it doesn't make sense right now, but this is gonna be for your good and it's gonna make you stronger. See, the real story of Christianity is that God is big enough to handle our doubts. He's patient enough to handle our doubts and he's there with us in our doubts as we're going through the hardest of hard things. Doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. And processing our doubt well can and will lead to a deeper, more confident faith. And so what we're gonna do this morning, we're, we're gonna keep going through the text, and I just wanna give you three things so that when doubt comes, and it will come, you'll be able to process it well and Lord willing, have it lead to a deeper, more confident faith. So here's the first thing. If doubt's a normal part of being a follower of Jesus, then we've gotta process our doubts safely within community. 
We've got to process our doubts safely within community. This is verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Let's stop right there. Now, this is a small observation, but it's critical. It's eight days after Thomas had expressed his doubts to the other disciples about Jesus' resurrection. It's eight days later, and guess what? Thomas is still there. The disciples didn't kick him out of their little community. He's still with them. Listen, what this is teaching us is that in our cultural moment in 2023, when we're going to be pressed with some doubts, we've gotta be able to process our doubts safely within community because when the doubts come, and they will come, We've gotta be able to process it in a space where it's okay to not have all the answers. We gotta process our doubts in a space where, where we resist comparison. And we have the courage to actually be vulnerable. Unless we forget that we were all in spiritual diapers at one point, we resist the seduction and insecurity of self-righteousness and embrace the messiness of being a family. Because here's why this is so important. Here's why we have to be able to process our doubts safely within community because there's no way that we're actually gonna take a step forward in faith unless we actually do that. Let me give you some Bonhoeffer here because this is helpful. In 1939, when the church in Germany was being fractured by the hate, by the mistrust, by the suspicion, by the evil of the Nazi empire, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He, he said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he, is, he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Do you hear what he's saying here? Satan works like a predator. First Peter five, he's a lion roaming around seeking who he may devour. And how does a lion hunt? He brings the antelope, he brings the buffalo away from the safety of the herd and that's where he devours them. Listen, our main point this morning is that doubt is normal and when it can be processed well, it can actually lead to a deeper, more confident faith. You can absolutely take a step forward in faith, but I'm telling you right now, it's always gonna be a step backward in despair, destruction, and disaster when you're processing that doubt alone. That's why we process our doubts safely within community where we can say, I don't know if I believe this. I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble believing this. And eight days later, eight weeks later, eight months later, we're still together, we're still listening, we're still pressing in, we're still seeking the Lord together. So what does this look like? Let me, let me kind of give you some language here that I think will help us walk through what it, what it looks like to safely process our doubts in community. Our big question is, can science and God coexist? Can you believe in both science and God? Do you have to pick one? Do I, can I choose both? Is Christianity just antiquated and anti-science? Is, is it really snake killing Dumbledore? What, what is it? No, I, I don't think it's that at all. 
and you can very much believe in science and God, but let's kind of talk about this further. Historically, the relationship between science and Christianity has been incredibly nuanced, it's been incredibly complex, but there is a concept that's very helpful when we're thinking through these things, and it's called the dialogue view. Dialogue view basically says this, um, that since God is both the author of scripture and the creator of the universe, there should be a dialogue between science and Christianity because when they're interpreted correctly, they both reveal the existence and attributes of God. So this is uh, the late Pope John Paul II on this. Science can purify religion from error and superstition. Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Each can draw the other into a wider world, a world in which both can flourish. See what he's saying here? That since God is both the author and the creator of everything, both science, which seeks to understand how the world works, and Christianity, which gives a comprehensive understanding for why the world works, since they both have a common creator, we can actually learn from both. Let me, let me explain this more with what's, what's called the, uh, the two books metaphor. Two books metaphor has been around since about 8200. It's been used by Christian theologians to understand and approach the relationship between science and faith. Uh, two books metaphor says that knowledge of God is found in two books. There's the book of nature and the book of scripture. So the book of nature, also known as the physical world, also known as general revelation, is a source of knowledge that points to God's existence and gives some of God's attributes. Book of Scripture, also known as the Bible, also known as special revelation, is the source of knowledge that points to God's existence and gives us all of God's attributes. Illustration goes that since God is the author of both books, when they're rightly understood, they're neither independent nor they're in conflict with each other, there's actually dialogue between them. Let me give you another one. Why is it that Christianity and science should have a dialogue between each other? Um, well, because they each engage different levels of reality. So think about it like this. Um, why does a teapot boil on the stove and make a noise when, when it's done? One reason is that water is changing from its state of matter from water to a gas. It's heated up to its boiling point. Gas rises and, and it makes a sound. Another reason is that someone was thirsty and they just wanted a cup of tea. Both answers are correct. But both answers together give a fuller answer to the question, why is the teapot boiling? Because they give a fuller comprehension of reality. Or how about this one? Who knows more about a strawberry? Is it the scientist who understands the chemical properties of the strawberry? Who understands how the molecules and the atoms fit perfectly together? How their order and design points to a designer? Is it the scientist who knows about the physical properties of the strawberry? Or is it the three-year-old who's actually tasted the strawberry? I mean, I think it's both. I think the answer is yes, because what they're doing is they're engaging different levels of reality. 
So for considering the question, can you believe in science and God, according to historic Orthodox Christianity, yeah, you absolutely can. And on top of that, it's been the Christian worldview that actually gave rise to modern science in the world because scientists, paradigm-altering scientists like Johann Kepler, Copernicus, Galileo, Isaac Newton, these were guys who believed that since the world was created by an imminent personal God who can be known, the world he created is imminent, personal, and can be known. These are good discussions. These are discussions that we should be having and that we can't be afraid of having, but we have to do them within the safe confines of community. Let's keep going in the text. This is verse 26. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Second thing, if doubt is a normal part of the Christian life, then we've gotta process our doubts honestly under the evidence. We're gonna process our doubts honestly under the evidence. I mean, try to see the perspective from, from Thomas here. Just days before, they all saw Jesus die. He was beaten, they drove nails through his feet and hands, they put a spear in his side, and he was buried. So when Thomas says, I'm not gonna believe this unless I see it, unless I touch it, he's kind of making some legitimate points. Because just three days before, they all saw Jesus publicly and brutally executed and he's been dead for three days. But then he shows up in physical form without walking through a door. We've talked about doubt a lot. Um, let, me, let me define doubt this way. Let me, let me kind of put some words to doubt. Doubt is simply this. Doubt is happens when, when the perceptions of your faith conflict with the reality of the world. Doubt happens when the perceptions of your faith conflict with the reality of the world. Thomas doubts Jesus could rise from the dead because he believes that in the real world, people don't rise from the dead. So he doubts the resurrection of Jesus because he's never seen somebody rise from the dead. But I want you to really think about this. Is that assumption fair? Is that a correct assumption about the world? I mean, people say this all the time. People who deny the supernatural, deny God, say that doesn't exist, they'll say, I only believe it if I could see it, if I could touch it. But is that reasonable to say that simply because you've never seen something like a miracle, it's enough to assume they don't happen? You see what's happened when you say that. Now we've left the, the concept of science altogether to make the claim that all truth can only be found in science. And that's not a scientific claim, that's a faith commitment. Because the irony that we have is that we're trying to say that everything can be found in science. Is it reasonable to assume that all truth and understanding can fit underneath a microscope? Is it reasonable to assume that if you've never seen a miracle, they don't exist? Is it reasonable to say that just because you've never seen a man rise from the dead, he didn't? I don't think it is. It, let me illustrate it by saying this. Suppose that you were at a project at work. You had a team and your team had access to a joint account. Only your team had access to it. 
but it becomes apparent that someone is embezzling funds. So your boss calls you in and says, I need you to find the thief. And you say, okay, I'm gonna go find the thief. And you look at your team and you realize that four of them are Republicans, four of them are Democrats. And you're a Republican and you say, Republicans don't embezzle money, I'm only investigating the Democrats. And, and you believe that because you think that only Democrats would ever embezzle money. Would that be reasonable? Of course not. Don't say it is. It's not. No. Uh-uh. Don't say that. <laughs> it would be a false assumption that would keep you from entertaining all the possible evidence, whether it points to your perceptions or not. That's why we have to process our doubt honestly under the evidence. Let's go home on this one. This is verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. I want you to look back at this text. Look, look, look back at it. Do you notice what Thomas didn't do? Thomas did not touch. That's the final part of the process here. If doubt is a normal part of being a follower of Jesus, then we've gotta process our doubt safely with Jesus. We've gotta process our doubt safely with Jesus. Almost all the commentators that you read who, who write on John 20, they agree that the way that we're supposed to read this story is that Jesus shows up and basically says, hey, touch, hey, touch. But Thomas doesn't do it. He doesn't say, all right, let me touch, let me touch. That's not what he does. He just says, my Lord and my God. You know why? Why does he drop his conditions here? I think this is the reason why, because he sees Jesus for who he really is. This is the first time in the book of John that a person calls Jesus God. And when Thomas realizes that the Son of God, the eternal King and Creator of the universe, who descended from heaven, who absorbed God's wrath, who died so that we could be free, who is now alive with open arms and nail-scarred hands, when he meets Thomas right there where he is in his doubts, and he doesn't say, figure it out. He doesn't say, clean yourself up. He says to Thomas in his doubts what he says to us in our doubts. I've got you coming here. This past week on Wednesday, I, I stopped off at Whole Foods and got some cheese. Um, my son Matthew loves cheese. He's five years old. He, he loves it so much. And when we were sitting down at the kitchen table and we bit into that slice of smoked Gouda with a hint of rosemary... He said this, he said, Dad, this is good. And I'm like, this is good, buddy. And then we, we just kind of got into this kind of weird conversation about cheese. And I said, hey, Matt, who do you think made cheese? He's like, well, well God did, Dad. And I'm like, yeah. Isn't God just great that he would give us cheese? I mean, cheese, how great is cheese? 
with a cheese stick or a pizza or that gooey cheese that mom eats when she, on crackers when she's not pregnant. I mean, it's, it's, it's great. Love this. And he's like, hey, dad, cheese is awesome. And I'm like, yeah, buddy, it is awesome. And isn't God awesome that he would give us something as great as cheese so that we could just taste a little bit of how good he is? And I know it's a weird conversation to have with a five-year-old, and it's kind of a, a strange conversation about cheese, but, but do, do you see what I'm saying here? It's taking everything good, everything beautiful, and pointing it to the fact that as we're delighting in it, God is delighting in us. He's patient with us. He's long-suffering with us. And I just, I just think sometimes we've forgotten some things. Like we've forgotten the very first line of the Westminster Confession which said, the primary directive of people is to know God, glorify God, and enjoy Him forever. And this has been kind of my knock on our denomination historically. Because in moralistic churches, where we set up God more like a policeman, and we say, God wouldn't appreciate that, God doesn't like this, you shouldn't be doing that because God will do this. Of course you're not gonna run to God when safely in your doubts because you're gonna be horrified of him. And early on in the evangelical community, we're taught to hide our shame, hide our fear, hide our questions because we think that God gets so upset at this kind of stuff. When in reality, we should be saying, how much must God love us that he has given us something as simple and wonderful as cheese? The real story of Christianity is not that it's anti-science, it's not that it's anti-intellectual, it's not that God is disappointed in you, it's that God delights in you. It's that God is for you, it's that he's patient with you. Uh, we were sitting at the table and I was thinking through, like Matt turned five this past, year, uh, this past week, and I was thinking back of, man, what was it like when he was, he was learning to walk? And if you've been there, you know this. When Matt was learning to walk, you know, he took that first step and he fell flat on his face. And what we did not do was say, come on, let's go, get up. Come on, you should be further on by now. Mm -mm. When Matt took that first step and he fell flat on his face, we ran up to him like he won the Super Bowl. We lifted him up, we were losing our minds, we were freaking out because he took a step. Isn't that what we've been talking about this whole time? How Jesus sees your wobbling, how he sees your awkwardness, how he sees your attempts to take a step forward in faith. And he says, that's my boy. That's my girl. Look at that. Steps. He sees you in your awkwardness. He sees you in your questions. And the Lord of the universe has his arms open with nail-scarred hands, cheering on his sons and daughters as they take a step forward in faith. Look, you're gonna face doubts, especially in 2023. When we have, it's not just science and faith, but it's a, it's a sexual ethic. There is a, a, a vision of human flourishing that is completely incompatible with what the Bible says. And when the Bible and culture collide, it's gonna feel like you're kind of living in two worlds and you're gonna face doubts. 
but we process them safely within community. We process them honestly under the evidence and we process them safely with Jesus. Maybe you're going through a season of doubt right now and you're like, I don't even, I don't even know. It's just, it's hard. I feel awkward. I feel just unnerved. I, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. It's been so long since I've been in church. I don't, I don't even know. And I would just say as an invitation to you today, your foot's already raised. Just take a step forward toward him in faith. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we're grateful for you. Help us to take a step forward in faith. Help us to trust you. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.